Introducing Mindful Parenting in a Messy World with Michelle Gale. This podcast is for parents who long to be meaningfully connected to themselves and their children, even as the demands of modern life are accelerated. Enjoy a collection of supportive conversations, meditations, and nuggets of practical wisdom to help you embrace the parenting journey as your greatest potential for personal growth. Welcome to Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. I'm your host, Michelle Gale, and today I am with friends and colleagues, Cecilia and Jason Hilke. They have worked professionally with children and families for 20 years. They've taught parents and educators to use compassionate methods to talk to kids, worked with children with special needs, and even taught together in the same preschool classroom. They founded Happily Family to respond to the needs of parents and teachers who wanted access to current research about the brain and more communication tools to use with the kids in their lives. Their popular blog, classes, and conferences touch the lives of tens of thousands of people each week. Cecilia and Jason have been featured in local and national media, including Kiplinger's Magazine and Elephant Journal. They regularly present at schools and conferences, including CAEYC. They have received grants from the Maternal Child and Health Bureau, California First Five, and the Awesome Foundation. Welcome, Cecilia and Jason. Thank you, Michelle. It's great to be here. Thanks, Michelle. Awesome. So we are going to talk about sibling relationships today. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Sibling rivalry. (laughs) Sibling rivalry relationship. Is there a difference? <laughs> no, it's just what everyone refers to it as sibling rivalry. It seems like that's the hot word. And you're always like, oh, yes. Okay. That is. It is. It is. And I have two boys who one is almost 14, the other's 10. And, you know, we have some serious ebbs and flows at my house um, where I feel like I'm going to pull my hair out with, with the sibling stuff going on. So, you know, we were talking before we came on. I said, you know, we teach, we teach what we need to learn. And so I feel like I'm going to get... <laughs> a lot out of this today and I'm really looking forward to learning from the two of you. Awesome. Well, thank you. We have two daughters and so uh, we can totally relate to the whole sibling thing we've had. It ebbs and flows in the same way around our house and and in the classroom we've had, obviously there's a lot of kids in the classroom, but we've also had siblings in the classroom and so it's it's interesting to see the dynamics between siblings versus just uh, peers in a classroom too. Yeah, Yeah, and our girls are now uh, 12 and 13. Yeah. Mm. I wonder if you could talk to just before, you know, I have some questions to ask, but what are some of the, you know, the bigger themes that you see coming up when you're talking to parents about struggles they're having with their siblings? Oh, I think a lot of parents are concerned about fairness yep. between the kids. kids or the kids are concerned about fairness. Yeah, kids, and parents <laughs> are wondering fair. how to handle it. Yeah. Um, parents are wondering just how to develop a good relationship with the kids and what things they can do. Parents are concerned about not favoring one over the other, either in the long term or even just in if there's a conflict, they're concerned about how things appear if they're consoling one child but not the other one and which one they should go to and how mm. they should support them. So it seems like they're not favoring one over the other. Mm, being fair Those- between the two. Yeah, that's 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 hard. That can be really hard. I've found that difficult myself. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't we start about, you know, how we handle it when kids feel like they're being unfair? Sure. What we like to talk to parents about is the difference between fairness and equity. 
And these are kind of our own definitions that we, we've defined fairness in our family to mean that we try to meet everybody's needs. Mm. And then equity is that everybody gets this equal thing. So we don't actually want equity in our family because people have different needs. If you've got one child that's sick, then you're not going to give them both medicine because they both need different things at the time. Uh, So we don't encourage parents to like make sure that if it's, oh, if it's one child's birthday that they have to give gifts to both of the kids or that both of the kids have to go on the play date or both of the kids have to go to Disneyland because different kids are going to need different things at different times. Different kids are going to have different opportunities at different times and uh, trying to distinguish the difference between everybody gets the same thing all the time, equity versus fairness is we get what we need at when we need it. And that's going to be different for each other. Uh, so our goal really ultimately is, is toward fairness rather than equity all the time. Do you want to say something to you, Jason? Um, yeah. You know, there was a time, I can't remember when it was, but it was actually m- more recent than I wish you, I wish I would come across this earlier on where I had this r- kind of realization of like, Oh, they're different people. <laughs> <laughs> and I started recognizing like, Oh, you know, one likes this kind of food and the other one doesn't like this kind of food. So why, for, for just as an example, why would I make one of them eat oranges when she doesn't like oranges while the other one loves oranges? You know, that that's not about fairness that's and that's about equality and i'm not wanting that i'm wanting what's uh fair for them and uh to start to recognize them as different people really just kind of opened my eyes to oh i treat them as different people just like i'm a different person and cecilia's a different person we all have these different needs rather than trying to balance it all, all the time. You know, we have a birthday party for uh, Alana. We're not going to make sure that Cecilia has a gift also. And so I started putting it into these terms of recognizing them as people and different people. And that may sound really like a duh, but for me, it was like a more of a realization of like, oh, I treat them differently because they're different people. So Yeah. And I think a lot of times when kids are complaining about fairness, it's like, oh, um, you know, she's gotten more dessert than I did. Mm. And so we talk about how are we going to work this out? Uh, if you're, if maybe you have one child like spoon the ice cream into the bowls and the other child chooses which bowl they want, that could be a solution to come up with handling that. Or the other thing about fairness that, uh, comes up sometimes is, oh, well, that's not fair. Cause, um, you know, I do these kind of chores and she does those kind of chores. And so we, we talk about it during family meetings. How do we want to handle this? You know, one, one of our kids does uh, a lot of the like daily maintenance kinds of things, like taking care of the cat and taking out the uh, recycling in the trash. And so that's like little bits during uh, each day, practically. Which is what she wanted when we talked about. That's what she chose versus another, our other uh, daughter chose to do the bathroom, you know, every once or twice, every one or two weeks. So that's going to be like a a larger, yeah. yeah, Toilet, shower, like sink, mirror, trash, sweep, like the whole thing. She can get that done on a weekend, but it's a longer period of time. So we, we kind of look at like, okay, yeah, these are different jobs and, and what's going to be fair 
for you guys? What's going to feel good? Mm. And if you don't like it, how it's worked out, like, let's switch it. Why not? What do you guys want to do? I mean, that's kind of how this all came about was us sitting down and talking about, here are the things that we need to do in the house. And, you know, you guys are old enough and more, and cap- more capable now that you're older. And they chose these things because they felt like that was fair and equitable. Um, and the same thing has happened with, it, it could be riding in the front seat of the car, you know, now that they're older. Um, they came up with a whole system of trading off and figuring out whose turn it is to ride in the front. or And who's going to be in control of the music yeah. and what kind of music are we going to listen to? And Or washing dishes, you know, that's one of the things that um, they help out with. And so that's been from a very early age. And they came up with a whole system of how they rotate, who's doing dishes, whose turn it is to do dishes. They, they're so much in control of that that I don't even know. I, I often turn to them, like, hey, whose turn is it? And of course, that can always that can always turn ugly too, and they'll be like, "Oh, it's not my turn. Oh, it's her turn." But <laughs> yeah. but it's it always gets worked out. I mean, it's but the thing is that they own that. That's yeah. their that's their way of working it out, and it feels fair to them because they came up with that agreement around it. Yeah, and there are sometimes when one child will get an opportunity that that isn't happening for the other child. Yeah. They will get the invitation to Disneyland or the birthday party or the sleepover or whatever. And if the if the child that didn't get that invitation complains, ah, that's not fair, then what that means to me is that we need to tune into their feelings and talk to them. Ah, yeah, you're disappointed. You're feeling sad because you'd really like to go and do that. That makes sense. And to help them um, kind of process that experience, I don't need to fix fix it. I don't need to like, oh, let's go do this amazing thing to make up for the fact that you're not going to get that invitation to the birthday party. I need to try to compensate for it. But I can be with that child in her feelings, really understand her. She knows that she's being understood. She's being seen. And oftentimes that's enough. And then after we've had our nice connecting conversation and she's talked about our feelings, like, oh, well, I'm going to go read a book now. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Moving gets, right along. It works out. It's funny how that is. And yeah. once they, they feel heard and understood, um, so often it just resolves itself. Yeah. Not always, but sometimes. Yeah. I wonder if you can speak to, you know, I know in my house a lot, I, you know, because of the age difference, right? I think when you've got a child who's, say, three or four years older, um, or maybe even two years older, um, you know, I know often... I get from one of my sons or the other, you know, how it's not being fair because they're allowed to do this or not allowed to do this. Right. And I, I often try to have that, give them that awareness of, Oh, your age. Right. So let's think about what you were doing when you were 10. Right. And what did we expect of you when you were 10? So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, because that we really struggle with that. And I know a lot of other parents do as well with that age gap and, and it's, it's different, right. And how you can be fair to each one. Yeah. Yeah. That's especially if the age is, uh, if there's an even wider gap. Yeah. And, and you'd think our girls are 18 months apart. You'd think with our kids that we wouldn't have those conversations, but we still do. (laughs) We still do. And, and, and we might even be slightly inconsistent when we say, Oh, you can't have a cell phone or you can't wear makeup or you can't watch this kind of movie until you're this age. And then we might realize, you know, gosh, with number two, huh? Yeah. We didn't need to be quite that strict. <laughs> We're realizing it's not that big of a deal. So sometimes we will be even be consistent from one kid to the other. We joke in our family that that kids don't actually even have the same set of parents mm. because how we are with one child 
is, can be different than how we are with another child as we grow and develop in our parenting and learn to trust in the process and in the relationship. And, and so much of it is responding individually to who that kid is and how they're, what the situation is. It's kind of the curse of the firstborn. As I, speaking as a firstborn, I can relate to like having broken my parents in. And I think that's a lot of times what happens. Um, but when, when there is a big age disparity, uh, you know, Sometimes uh, what, we, what we've heard parents talk about and what uh, some recommendations are is to, uh, to acknowledge what they're capable of at that age, and that's how they're contributing. So if, you know, if one child's uh, three and the other child's eight, uh, you know, for the three-year-old to uh, help put away dishes can be pretty challenging, and that could be, it could be possible. Uh, where for the eight-year-old, that's not as big of a, a stretch. And so the three-year-old may be helping in a way that they can help best. And so it may be easier for the three-year-old to pick up things, put things away, uh, you know, do some other things to help contribute to the house mm-hmm. where the eight-year-old I may expect more of or I may ask them to do more because they're more capable. And having that conversation about like, this isn't about being equal, but about being what's fair and you're more capable and they're, this is what they're capable of at their age. And this is a stretch for them. This is work for them. This is hard work for them, what they're doing. It's not as much hard work for you if you were to do that because you're more capable. You're older. You've got a lot more skills. So we're trying to find something that's fair for both of you and, uh, and trying to work that out. So that's, that's one thing that we'll talk about is what their capability is. Yeah, and I think it goes back to looking at what the need is that we're trying to uh, kind of establish in our family. Like we, one of our values in our family is that we all contribute. We're a helping family. So how a three-year-old contributes to the family is going to look a lot different than how uh, an eight-year-old contributes to a family. And same with if you have a child with a disability, uh, whether it's a learning disability or physical disability, there it's going to look different. They might not be capable of doing the same things as uh, even somebody else that's in their same peer group, or they might be way more capable than of doing those things. So a lot of it is kind of going back to the need. What are we trying to, what value do we have underneath that? this? Is it about contributing to the family? Is it about learning a, a certain skill uh, and kind of returning to that? Because it's, it's hard. And I think no matter how far apart your kids are or how close together they are, we're continuously as parents trying to look at our children in the moment and in the context of the weeks and the months and the years and figure out what's going to be appropriate for them, how much I can expect of them, uh, and, and looking at it in kind of a big picture uh, perspective. Yeah. I think the big picture, the big picture is what I try to look at is like for the long term, what do we, what are we really going for? I'm like, yeah, you know, I will, I do need the trash taken out just in the short term and things need to get done. And, you know, we talk about like, you know, who can do what, but what I'm really shooting for here is a relationship and communication. And that's, what's important to me for the long term of all of this. And so while we're trying to figure out, you know, the, the, the ins and outs of what's fair, 
um, we may want to actually get to a conclusion. What's more important to me is the way I enter into those conversations with the kids is one in which they feel like they have a voice, that they have something that, that contributes to the family to have this conversation. And it's not me making the decisions and me being the one to decide, um, but that they are, uh, that they're having a conversation with everyone in the family to figure it out. Um, so that's, that helps, um, uh, foster the relationship and it opens those lines for communication and it also tells them hey you're important your ideas are important you matter and you contribute to this which are the bigger lessons the, the bigger uh the the bigger framework that i want our kids to grow up in and then whatever gets said you know we uh, sometimes it just doesn't really matter what gets said. I mean, in the long term, yeah, for the short term, sure, it does matter. But really, if we're playing the long game, what's more important is to keep our eye on that rather than how do I deal with this situation right here? What's the right way to deal with this one situation? I, I don't want to diminish that because that can be very frustrating and those situations need to be dealt with. But like us, the taking out the trash situation. Yeah, or it's not fair. Why do I have to do all this stuff? Like, yeah, you got to deal with all that. But really trying to keep our eye on the long game is where the value is. And that's what we try to talk about a lot here rather than here's what you say. Yeah, and I think the long game also, not just is the, about the relationship, but it's also about um, helping our kids develop the skills that they need to survive in the world. So uh, taking out the trash is... Uh, an aspect of them developing those skills, but it, it's um, but there are lots of different ways for me to help them develop those skills. That's just a particular way. There, that's just a particular strategy to meet that goal. Uh, that if in a any particular moment, if the child isn't wanting to take out the trash, they can they can develop those skills to be successful in the world by cleaning the toilet, by um, doing it the next day, by uh, doing something else that, that will contribute. Do you want to say what those skills are that they're, that they're learning by doing that? They're, because the skill of cleaning the bathroom is not that great of a skill. Oh, it's for the skill of like being successful in the world. Mm. Yeah. Being able to recognize that there's other solutions that could be worked out, knowing that I can work out a different solution, knowing that I can go and say, hey, what could I work out here instead? You know, take it to the workplace as they're much older, rather than going to the boss and saying, this isn't fair, this shouldn't be this way. I think it's more powerful and have better skills to come to the boss and say, here's what I would like to do. You know, can we work this out so that this happens and this happens? That's going to be a whole lot better of a skill. I think that's going to go for the last, the long term. Oh, pause. Um, I don't know if you guys can hear that, but my stupid, my, my calendar keeps going off. Wait, I'm pausing for a second. Sure. Okay. All right. I see we're recording. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think there's a lot more valuable of a skill for a child to be, uh, to able to say, this isn't fair and here's what I would like to do instead. When they're going and, in, talking to the boss. So it, as they're older, then if they go in and they talk to the boss because something's happening in their workplace, rather than coming to the boss and saying, this isn't fair, change this. It's a lot better skill, I think, to come in and say, this isn't fair, or not even saying this isn't fair, but this, this isn't working. I would like to see, could we change it to be doing this? Could we change it to do that? Having ideas and coming forward with an actual action plan is a stronger 
uh, skill than mm. coming forward and expecting someone else to take care of it and giving that power to someone else. So that's kind of the skill that we're wanting our kids to develop in uh, in this this power or this fairness kind of conversation with a uh, with a sibling. Yeah, and I'm hearing a lot of you know focus on communication and context um, with with what you've been sharing. So I just want to wrap that up for the listeners a bit. You know, just a lot of communication. You know, talking about it and then talking about it again, and then constantly kind of zooming back. I'm hearing and like, what is you know, who is this child? What is the situation? You know, what's possible right now? Um, so just a lot of context. I'm really appreciating. Yeah, yeah, we we're big we're big advocates of communication. Can you tell? Yes, I can. I think it's wonderful. Um, you know, what if we talk a little bit about you know, first things are not fair. You know, they're bickering a little bit. The things aren't fair, and then it goes to a full on conflict, <laughs> right? And now we're in conflict, and you know, there may be some yelling, there may be some hitting. Um, you know, what what do you guys? do with your own girls and what do you suggest other parents do depending on the age obviously um, I, run, I run screaming out of that run house. run <laughs> I'm out of there it's a great question michelle and first i wanted to talk about the difference that that the research has showed over how to handle sibling um conflicts kind of over the years as a as a segue to this conversation of how do you actually deal with it because it used to be and this was even taught to us when our kids were little like let kids work it out just you know give them the freedom and they'll figure it out and that was some of the research that had been done in like the 30s and 40s and 50s uh then it turned out and and it was true that kids left to their own devices had less conflict But when some more research came out in the 70s, uh, looked a little bit more closely at what was really happening during those times when kids were left to their own devices, it was that most often the older child was powering over the younger or the more powerful child was powering over the less powerful child. There was, um, kids were not learning good problem solving skills in the moment. And if the adult was there, but ignoring it or letting the kids kind of work it out, then it was it was almost interpreted by the kids <clears throat> as permission to steamroll over the less powerful child in the situation. And the less powerful child would fall into that into that role more often, so that they because that was the way yeah, they, they would deal they didn't with have the any choice. They could just they the only choice available to them was just to kind of give up. Right. Uh, so now the thinking and. And they found that that has led to more bullying types of personalities um, and not, like like Cecilia was saying, not building the skills of how to resolve conflict. Right. So so now the thinking is let's help kids work out the conflict. Let's role model for them some conflict resolution because just like us as parents, we're learning how to deal with power struggles and stuff. Our kids are learning how to deal with that stuff that much more. They have that much less life experience and perspective and ability to regulate their emotions and all these things. So let's support them and role model for them how they can um, constructively communicate and get through a conflict. And that role modeling, do you want to give an example or what you mean by role modeling? Sure. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit about about hitting and kicking okay. before we got into the role modeling. Um, 
Okay. So can you, just, you want to hold on to that for a sec? I'll just, it's really short. I just want to say yeah. that the role modeling is, uh, I think it applies both to uh, supporting the kids and role modeling with them on how to resolve it. But it also means, and this is kind of the bad news for the parents, is that we have to be responsible about how we resolve conflict ourselves. Yeah. In our, know, even in, in our, our own adult relationships. That's, yeah. exactly the kids. I, that's exactly what I mean. Is like in our, in our relationships or when we're interacting with someone else, the cashier who's, you know, has, we're having a conflict with, or the, the guy who just rear-ended me in a car or whatever it might be, or with my spouse, um, that it's, that we also are needing to role model for them how to interact with someone and to resolve a conflict in a way that we want them to also emulate. And, uh, that, that's kind of the, the good news, bad news is that if we, if we work on it ourselves, it's a really easy way to show them and for them to learn. It also can be very challenging for us to do our own personal work, to be able to be acting the way we want our kids to act. Yeah. And this isn't just something that we thought up, but this is something that Daniel Goleman talks about in his book, Social Intelligence and Emotional Intelligence, that the most powerful way for people to learn more social skills or emotional skills is to be around living, breathing models of other people that have good social uh, skills, good emotional skills, good EQ. So and that's true in the business world. That's true in a classroom. That's true in a family. Uh, that us role modeling and demonstrating it over and over and over again for the kids and uh, is very very impactful for them. So I think you should. You, yes. So I don't think looking at. I think we should get to really what her yeah, question is. The question is about like what I are you doing? That up. No, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> Hitting, kicking, screaming. Um, so knowing that, okay, this is how kids actually learn how to deal with conflict. Usually before I do anything with the children, I need to come at it with a a mindset of, oh, this is how everybody learns how to get along. Or even saying to myself, ah, this is the most important work I'm going to do today. Mm. That helps shift me into a different space away from my fears of, this is wrong. I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I can't believe my kids are doing this to me. Maybe even kind of a victim mentality, uh, being fearful about that they're, they're, you know, what if they did this in public or what if, whatever else, whatever stories that I'm bringing into the situation in my head, that's the first thing that I want to check and, and do a, a reframe to, this is the most important work that I'm going to do today, or this is how they learn how to get along. And building that foundation and working from that foundation on changes how we communicate. Because we can say the same words and have a different foundation and it'll be interpreted very differently. But yeah, the kids sense where, where who we're, we're being. Yeah, right. Even if we say the same exact words, um, kids... It can read our emotions, even like our little micro emotions, they can read us so well. Yeah. And we know that we can even infect them with our emotions. So, so checking in with ourselves is, is a really important first step. I remember specifically in the classroom how, and, and it's nice being in the classroom uh, because when kids have a conflict, uh, it's not as triggering as when it's our siblings so, or if it's our, our own kids. Yeah, I mean. yeah. Um, it's easier so, to do stuff with other people's kids. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was able to mm-hmm. practice a lot more without getting triggered. But I remember specifically in the classroom when a conflict would occur. And again, this was we were uh, teaching preschool together, um, and we were also in a uh, a 
progressive school that used this type of communication and this type of parenting and this type of teaching, um, whenever there was a conflict, I, for whatever reason, I got to this point, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, this is that, this is the time when things really start to, they get to learn and they figure things out. And like, mm. there was like an excitement or like a positive kind of feeling that I had when there was a conflict. It was really interesting to me because it's not how I really related to it in the home. And I worked at bringing that home. And so the more I look at conflict in the home with our siblings or with our kids, the more, and I see it as being something positive, then it allows for me to just have a whole different kind of conversation with them and how to deal with that conflict. So building that foundation where we're starting from and getting clean on that first, I think is uh, the first step and then figuring out, okay, now what do I do? And you got to do it like that. You know, you just got to do it immediately because there's hitting, kicking, screaming, whatever's happening. They're not going to take a pause while I'm doing all that work. So it's something that- You can go meditate for 10 minutes and come back. (laughs) Yeah, no, but you know, your meditation practice can help with this so much because when I I, um, you know, I'm teaching a group of, of parents right now, a six-week course, and we just finished up our uh, lesson on, you know, really exploring like pleasant and unpleasant, right, for us. Mm-hmm. So what is a pleasant experience and how quickly that can change. And so I really like how you are um, connecting mindset, you know, to this kind of pleasant, unpleasant. So instead of, you know, as soon as they start fighting, it's immediately unpleasant right? (laughs) Right. It just goes right to unpleasant. You know, what if the mindset could be, ah, okay, there's a learning opportunity here. Mm. Um, so you shift that, you know, that mindset work is so important. Um, so I'm really, I'm loving that. I couldn't agree more about the the meditation. I wish I had started meditating earlier on in my parenting, actually just in life in general. But I would say that, you know, in the years that I've been meditating, it's very, it's been very impactful for me to be able to recognize in those moments of like, oh, this is it. Even if it's just me noticing, oh, this is unpleasant, rather than it just being, me being able to recognize it, being mindful about it, that one piece, has, and, and having built that muscle, that skill by meditating um, has really made it much easier. So, so yeah, so doing that prep work of, uh, and building that skill uh, of mindfulness through meditation uh, definitely makes a difference when these high energy kind of episodes occur of like, there's a fight going on. What do I do? Yeah. yeah. And I think it, it, it also helps us become aware that we're separate from our emotions. Mm-hmm. So many times we think, oh, I'm angry or I'm sad rather than I am feeling angry. This is my anger. This is my sadness. Yeah. Yeah. And even shifting emotions to thinking, oh, I, to some degree, I have a choice about this. That This isn't who I am. This is the experience that I'm having and, and uh, noticing that there's a, there's some space between me and my feelings. Yeah. So, okay. So we got foundation. Yeah. We're talking about mindfulness and building this foundation and coming from a place so hitting, this is positive and this is okay. And this is the way that they're And it might not it be positive, but well, it might be like, yeah, at least, at least not negative. Yeah. <laughs> we can at least come at it from a neutral. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's hitting, kicking, screaming, fighting happening. Whatever yeah. it is. And, and, and when there's hitting, kicking, screaming, I, I also look at the kids and I understand Okay, this is a this is again a strategy that they're using right now because they've run out of strategies. Yeah. They they don't have they've probably tried some different things and it didn't work and they're at the end of their rope. Yeah. Uh, so knowing that their behavior is an attempt to communicate, knowing that 
they're behaving this way because they're really attempting to meet one of their needs and that this is a cry for help uh, helps me also to get into the right mindset. And I think we're talking a lot about what happens before you actually take an action. And it, it, all this obviously has to happen instantaneously, practically. But this is, I think, the, the most really important part. important part of it all. And yeah. there's work that we've done beforehand to prepare ourselves for these kind of a, these kinds of situations. But this is really the important stuff because what action you take after that is affected by that foundation. So, so assuming that we've instantaneously done all these ideal things, yep. then the first thing is step in. People keep people's bodies safe. I mean, that's, yeah. we, and, I put myself we, off, if it's younger kids, you know, actually for almost any kid, I'll put myself in between them mm-hmm. just to prevent people from getting hurt. Like my, the first thing I'm saying is, whoa, whoa, people's bodies need to stay safe. This is not okay. Yeah. And we, we call it in our work with parents, we call it a single sentence, like just one thing. Oh, I'm not willing for you to hit. that's not a time to like give a lecture about hitting or give a lecture about yelling or pulling hair, not willing for you to pull hair and to create some safety. It might be me inserting my body in in between the kids. Uh, It might be me gently putting uh, an arm over the child's arms uh, and but, over the, it's, it's hard to show, show this yeah, in, a, a, in a podcast, but <laughs> yeah. actually without using our hands, but actually using our arms to just prevent them from raising their arms, mm. so putting ourselves gently uh, around them, kind of creating a space so that they aren't lashing out with their hands. Um, and that's being protective, not just of the other person of, or other things, if they're damaging things, but also for them to be for them, Sure. And then immediately, like seconds after uh, we come in, I'm not willing for you to hit, then I turn in and talk to the kids about their feelings. Uh, Hopefully, they're becoming to connect a little bit more with the, the higher parts of their brain, the thinking creative parts of their brain. Hopefully, they're not totally stuck in their their limbic system and the emotional parts of their brain that they can actually if they're in their higher parts of their brain, if those are coming online, then they're understanding what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But if they're still, even if they're still really emotionally triggered and really angry and really sad and upset, they're at least tuning into my body language, my voice, my nonverbals, and that's helping them calm down. And I'll say, oh, you're so upset. This isn't working out the way that you wanted it to. What can, what can we do? And, and maybe even talking to the kids about what happened. Uh, figuring out what it what was that that conflict that they were having it are they fighting over a toy are they fighting over the who gets to sit on the couch uh, and that conversation about what could we do or trying to figure it all out is something that occurs once they are in their thinking part of their brain because if we're trying to talk to them about that when they're still completely Upset. emotionally charged yeah. um, or as Dan Siegel would say flip their lid yes. and that's they're not going to be able to talk about other ideas or come up with solutions because that's not the part of the brain that they're engaged in right now. So that can be a conversation that occurs a little bit later after really having connected with the feelings and being able to give them a little bit of time or us having a conversation or whatever it is to uh, be able to uh, be getting out of the thinking or the feeling part of the brain and uh, be thinking more about it. 
Yeah. So, so to recap, we talked about mindset, we talked about creating some safety with like a single sentence, maybe physically putting our body in between and then talking about feelings, mm-hmm. Yeah. kind of getting to the bottom of the, of the conflict and then brainstorming solutions. And sometimes this will happen uh, by the kids going into separate rooms, being in separate parts of, of the house and all I become like a little ambassador or something. I'll like go and talk to one child and say, okay, what happened? How are you feeling about it? What was going on? And, um, and help them use language that by the time they get back together and they're talking about it face to face, they're not using language that is laced with judgment or name calling or, stories that they've made up about the other person and how they're victimized. They're not saying, oh, she's so mean and I hate her and I want her to die. They're, they're using um, I, statements. I statements. They're making observations. I came to my bedroom and I saw that you were using my phone. Um, so that... Or I was building blocks. I was stacking my blocks yeah. and you knocked them over. So uh, we then go through the, um, the steps of compassionate communication oftentimes where we talk about the observation and then we talk about what they were feeling. They talk about what they were feeling. They talk about what the need is. And then they have a request or a strategy on how to meet that need. And uh, so those, that's a whole framework, just that whole communication um, that's based on Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, we frame that and call it compassionate communication, that using that framework in a number of different uh, uh, scenarios. But in this case, being able to use that when you're reconnecting, it's hard. It can be challenging to try and use that framework in the middle of everything just going really south and yeah. you're just trying to keep people's bodies safe. You're not going to try and use this framework, but <laughs> yes. it's something you're going to bring in afterwards when they're talking and supporting them to be able to talk about each one of those stages. Yeah. And then after they've kind of gotten clear on what happened and how they felt about it, then then we'll bring them together and just talk about it face to face and uh, figure out something that's going to work for everyone. Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you guys. And I think I appreciate the recap. I'm sure people are appreciating who are listening are appreciating that as well. And we are, we are out of time. It just went too fast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. No, I loved it. I mean, we talked about fairness, talked about the research, talked about hitting, kicking, screaming. Um, I feel like we got communication, good communication. I mean, we got a lot in, in a short amount of time. So, um, you know, I really just want to thank you guys for being here. And I want to give you a, a moment or two to share with the listeners ways to reach you, any projects you have going on. How can people work with you? Well, you can always uh, find us on our website, uh, www.happilyfamily.com. Happily, like as in happily happily ever after. after. And so happilyfamily.com is probably the best place to uh, see what we've got going on. We uh, have a weekly blog. Um, There's also on the front page a calming plan that you could download. Um, And so that's just a plan that you can use for your family, for uh, the kids, as well as for ourselves to uh, get calm uh, when things are not calm when, when we're kind of up in the air and it just uh, is a whole plan on how to go about putting that together. And yeah, that's just called, a free, it's a it's, free download. It's called five steps to a calm family or something like that. That's it. Um, and so that's the, probably the best way to track us down and to uh, keep up with what we're doing. And we have a blog that we, um, we update regularly and uh, you can follow us through that. Great. 
wonderful. Um, thank you so much. And thank you. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna end here. Thank you, and Michelle. It's been great talking to you. You're yeah, it's been great. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. And thanks to our listeners for being here. May you meet this moment fully. May you meet this moment with kindness towards yourself and others. Thanks for listening to Mindful Parenting in a Messy World with Michelle Gale. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share our podcast with a friend and give us some stars and a favorable review at iTunes. 